welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Mark Kane from Seattle Children's Hospital talking about pediatric reconstructive urology. All right, good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. We're at the top of the hour here, and I, I think we have a restricted uh, time limitation for the lecture today. Um, hope you're all safe in this uh, strange new world we're living in, and uh, sounds like everybody's getting back to work here fairly shortly. So uh, be safe as we change back to kind of a working uh, environment again. Today, we're going to talk about pediatric urinary tract reconstruction and primarily surgical management of children with spina bifida. Um, so we'll have a chat room function at the end. I'm going to try to leave about 10 to 15 minutes just to answer questions. Uh, Michelle also let me know that if you have questions that we didn't answer, we'll be able to post those on the website as well. So thank you all for participating this morning. I have no relevant disclosures at all. What we're going to talk about are what I consider the, the most complicated things we deal with in, in pediatric urology. So this is myelomeningocele, spina bifida, bladder extrophy, and rarely kids with posterior urethral valves that aren't ever going to get to this point, which is normal voiding uh, very often. And it's really incumbent on us to try to get the kids to a more normal uh, type of urinary storage and safe urinary storage. So the problem with spina bifida is that the urologic problems we see don't always correspond to the lesion that you see externally. So you may see a child in the lower left here that has a very obvious external spina bifida or something much less obvious, like just a, an asymmetric gluteal crease, but that may turn out to have the same effect on the child as far as urinary function. Um, and again, long-term follow-up is one of the keys to, to managing these kids safely. So I know you had a lecture on uh, medical management, that's always where we start for these kids uh, with spina bifida. We want to make sure that we have tried everything non-surgical before we consider any type of surgical intervention. So these are going to be anti-muscarinics, anti-cholinergics, alpha agonists, Botox, clean intermittent catheterization, and then we're going to look at what are the other options for surgical intervention. That's what we're going to focus primarily on today. So I think one of the things that we've always forgotten of is that uh, we've never considered what the family or patient goals are. We've always looked at it as what's our surgical goal. And our surgical goal has frequently been continence. But these are, I think, equally important things to consider. What's the family expectation? What are their goals for any kind of surgical reconstruction? Do they wanna be bone dry and out of diapers? Do they wanna be socially dry? Do they wanna void? Do they want a cath through the urethra or through an abdominal stoma? Do they care about fecal continence? Are they able to manage that medically? And what price are they willing to pay? And I don't mean the dollar cost, because this is all very expensive, but what's the risk that they're willing to take to try to get drier? And that may be different from patients to patients, and it may change as these patients get older and into adult life. And I've always said life and surgery, it's all about your perspective. So this is, I, I moved to Seattle about almost a year ago. Here's the, my view of the Space Needle. It looks very different than when you're looking down on it. That looks like a UFO or something. Uh, but surgery is the same. It depends on your perspective. So uh, history is really important, I think, for providing perspective. So if you look at our evolution to continence and you go back at early management of spina bifida, it was all about closing the back, the orthopedic deformities, VP shunts, and the, really the last thing that got accomplished was 
looking to what can we do to preserve the kidney, but also then to try to achieve some modicum of continence for these children. And these are kind of the things that happened. Uh, intermittent calf in the 70s, bladder outlet resistance procedures, these have been around forever. And then bladder augmentation. These are the three kind of the triad of things that can get the kids to dryness. And there's a huge surge of, of interest and actually changes in the technical approach. And one of the problems is when you have this newly advancing field, and pediatric urology in general is a fairly young field, meaning it's been around for maybe 40 or 50 years. Most of the data early on is surgeon-driven, surgeon-evaluated, and the parents are always a proxy for the child's eventual outcome. So a lot of these things are not validated. We are so far behind the, our oncologic colleagues about validated outcomes, it becomes a little bit difficult to know what are we judging our outcomes and our, and our uh, success on. So again, the era of reconstruction, this was the outcome we drove to in the mid-2000s. It involved bladder augmentation, Mitrofenov. And I like to tell my fellows and residents always, any new surgical concept or procedure, it gives you three trips around the operating room and around the journals and around the world if you're lucky, because you get to travel and talk about how you did something, how you modified it, and then why you no longer did it and why you tweaked it. I'm gonna give one example of this, just as a historical example of gastrocystoplasty, well thought of as far as the hypothesis, because a lot of these kids back in the 70s and 80s, they were acidotic because they had renal insufficiency. So somebody came up with the idea, why don't we add a patch of stomach to try to neutralize the acid-base kind of body uh, 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 metabolism. So this became very, very popular, that we just add a gastric patch. The problem was, no one really thought about what happens if you put a piece of stomach in the bladder early on. And they're, they're, the literature is replete with reasons why not to use this. So hematuria dysuria syndrome, metabolic alkalosis, which as opposed to metabolic acidosis is extremely difficult to treat. The stomach is a contractile piece of bowel, so rhythmic contractions were a problem. And it probably by far had the highest risk of cancer of any of the bowel uh, replacement uh, that we use. So early on in, my, on in my career, we published a paper out of Indiana that was the Indy 500, kind of play on words a little bit here, here, but it was the first time anybody had reported 500 augmentations. And again, if you look at big cancer series, 500 doesn't seem like a lot, but at that time, it was about two or three times as big as any other series in the literature. And the problem is that this focused on problems in that, in that two thirds of these patients, even with modest follow-up, had a need for secondary surgery. And so really what we needed to focus on early on was, did it really matter? So I, when I was in medical school, we were still doing ileal conduits on these kids. And you had to ask the question, does continence matter? Does this big operation like this actually worthwhile to the patient? Bernie Churchill was a, down at UCLA, but before that he was up in Toronto. And he used to always harp on this pyramid that you have to kind of approach reconstruction or even medical management. So the key is at the top. You always have to think about long-term kidney function, then trying to rehab the bladder, preventing infection, then comes urinary and fecal incontinence, and then becomes transition to independent care. And that, that, that then speaks to quality of life. Now, you never give up one of these high important concepts for anything down here. And you certainly don't wanna turn a social problem, which is incontinence, into a medical problem, which is either a life-threatening condition or a long-term cancer risk. So <clears throat> first thing we, we looked at back, and this is back in the 2000s when we wrote this paper, was did we actually change the longevity of these patients? Because again, if you look at the uh, history of spina bifida, we 
closed their backs, we did the VP shunts, they survived but then they died of renal failure. So that's this, this cohort right in here. So the, the early death was actually here from neurologic problems, here from actually urologic problems, renal failure, urosepsis. But if you look at just a snippet of patients, this is about 370 patients that had augmentation. So that at that time, that was the worst outcome patient because you were doing this because they already had renal insufficiency. And interestingly, their life expectancy up to about age 20 was not much different. So did we do something that was beneficial to them? Absolutely. And what we really did is we no longer saw people dying of either renal failure or renal or urosepsis, but we pushed them on to other reasons for morbidity and hopefully a more normal lifestyle. So how about quality of life? This was an early survey done by Rosalie, Missouri, looking at if you did an augmentation, a MACE, which is for stool incontinence, and a Mitrofenov procedure, and then asked them who was happy with this, and this was a parent survey, about 80 plus percent actually said their quality of life was markedly improved, but it actually still didn't get to the patient quality of life. And these were quality of life validated instruments that finally came out and it actually showed us something very interesting about spina bifida patients. And it had to do with how we defined continence and whether that degree of continence mattered to the patient. So if you look at the historical evaluation for continence, it was always a dry interval. Are you dry for three hours or four hours? And really what mattered to these patients when you asked them and broke it down, it was how much incontinence did you have? So if you had no incontinence, your quality of life score up here was actually not that much different than you or I. Whereas if you had a little drip, it was still pretty good. But if you were soaking wet, your quality of life actually was significantly reduced. And as you can expect, this was even more important if you had fecal incontinence. Why? Because it's really high, easy to hide urinary incontinence because you've got good diaper techniques today. But the minute they have a stool accident, everybody knows it. Both the bad smell and actually it's hard to conceal it. So. If you look at age timing for when it matters, the other thing that was surprising that was found is that we used to think the kids need to be reconstructed before they got to school age. So six, seven, eight, that's when kids start school. That's when most schools say you gotta be out of diapers, but that actually didn't matter as much except for the fecal incontinence. So their health-related quality of life, you can see the fecal incontinence mattered almost uniformly here the minute the child went to school whereas the urinary incontinence started to matter more when they got into their adolescent or adult years. So it wasn't as important to reconstruct them for urinary incontinence down here. So it changed a little bit of our timing, <clears throat> but again, long-term is what mattered. And we never really thought of our patients. This is the same little girl back in 2003, Mace Monty augmentation. Here she is at 23 years old. Still my patient, but we've got all these other things we've got to think about like sexuality and pregnancy and adult continence. So, Great study by Josh Roth that he did with uh, actually the Kinsey Institute down at Indiana University for, the, for, for sexual help. And not surprising, the level of bother if you had urinary incontinence during sexual activity mattered a lot if you had just a little bit or it almost never happened versus if you were always incontinent. It actually was a big uh, bother and dissatisfier. And fecal incontinence 100% of the time, didn't matter if you almost never had it or had it every time you were sexually active really high bother scores. So, so what we get from this is that the same little girl here that gets through teenage years and into adult life, continence matters for their adult life um, if they're independent especially. So I always got to throw a couple of fish pictures in in case anybody's a fisherman. That's one from 
Patagonia. So as we go through how we're gonna to get to continents, we're gonna look at all these different type of uh, surgical techniques. The first thing is controlling bladder outlet resistance. So with a spina bifida patient, their outlet can either be fixed and open or it can be wide like a funnel. And the problem is if you look at all, all the techniques we have surgically, none of them are perfect. So what's perfect? It's to get them dry for three or four hours or socially dry, not change their bladder capacity or compliance, the process of doing that, not risk the kidneys, and either allow easy CIC or voiding per urethra, and it has to be durable and long-term, and nothing exists today. And the reason why is there's too many moving parts. The bladder might change after you do that. The surgical options have been tweaked continuously, so we don't have any continuous way to monitor this. There may be changes in the sphincter deficiency, because remember these kids have all had back operations, and spinal cord tethering may change the outlet resistance and or the bladder compliance or contractility. So if we look at our options, it goes from minimal intervention, alpha agonists, I've, I've seen one or two patients where that's worked, versus bulking agents, slings, bladder neck reconstruction, flap procedures, sphincters are closing the bladder neck. Your continence is gonna go this way, but your surgical aggression is gonna also increase as you go down that slide. So if you look at bladder neck injection, this is injecting uh, deflux, which I would say probably isn't the best because it's a soft material. It's not as good as what's been used in the adults, but we knew it was safe in kids. And you can see that 20%, 30% improvement or dry, not perfect results. Now the anti-grade approach is probably a better way to approach it, especially in girls, because as you're doing this retrograde, males or females, where you place that is really important and you, you have to get it submucosal. So if you look at it in an in a actually anti-grade fashion, it's much easier to put the needle in and show occlusion of this wide open bladder neck. And so at least with early results, uh, at least one center has shown much better outcome, about 70% improvement using the anti-grade approach where you're just essentially completely occluding that. Now long-term follow-up again is important. We don't have great long-term data yet. The next level of kind of aggressive surgical repair would be a bladder neck sling. Now a sling is really different than what you do in an adult female because all you're doing is trying to sling up that kind of lax pelvic floor to try to improve continence and usually in multiparous women or you know some other reason it's not sphincteric insufficiency necessarily which is what we're dealing with. So one of the problems is you have to create this sling here at the bladder neck that's occlusive. So if the bladder neck is really wide and not very funneled this sling has to essentially wrap and occlude the entire bladder outlet to be successful. And that's why you'll see success rates that are very variable because the patients that are selected for slings aren't identical with neuropathic or spina bifida type conditions. So if you look at an SIS sling, about 70% dry, and that 70 to 75% number is pretty repetitive if you look at anything. This was a multi-institutional, about 70% dry here. If you look at multiple series, Again, that number 70 to 75%. This will change a little bit based on follow-up and whether or not the patient had augmentation. The other thing that we saw anecdotally was boys, especially, since you're slinging the, right next to the prostate, it's a little harder to get it occlusive. And if they're ambulatory, that Valsalva leak point pressure overcomes the sling fairly frequently. So the best probably outcome I've seen with slings, this is the Miami group. Uh, 58 patients, 100% of them were augmented, and most of them had an alternative way to empty the bladder. They got up to 90% in females. So if you select the patient correctly, I think, you can offer up to almost 90% success rate with a sling together with complete bladder reconstruction. 
So the bladder neck repairs, and I, I've always laughed because we call this a bladder neck reconstruction. This is really a bladder neck stricture that we're creating. So I think of this as a controlled stricture. And one of the problems historically before you had a metrophena is you had to make this wide enough to either void through or catheterize through, but tight enough that you created resistance. So essentially we're creating a long controlled stricture, hoping that the bladder pressure is never high enough to overcome the resistance you get here. And if you think about it, you know, we're, we're, we've moved with uh, bladder extrophy to try to reconstruct that sphincter mechanism. That's not really what we're doing with spina bifida. That mechanism's there, it just doesn't work. So we're trying to create a really tight bladder outlet. So the classic young D's type operation, like you see here, or a funneling. This is a modified Mitchell repair. We're just gonna leave a strip here that we're just gonna make that really, really tight. Those are the procedures that have been done. If you look again, about 70 to 80% success rate. People tried putting sheaths around it. We'll talk about adding a sling to it because that's what a lot of people have gone to. So the other kind of ingenious uh, operations all had to do with trying to recreate something that's a continence mechanism similar to a ureteral reimplant. So if you look at how a reimplant works, it's a flap valve mechanism for continence. So if you can create a bladder flap, your continence rate should be higher. And so this is Ken Crop's procedure. It's essentially an anterior bladder flap. You just keep it attached to a part of the urethra you tubularize this anterior bladder flap and then tunnel it across the posterior bladder wall. And the biggest problem with this is actually um, tortuosity right here. And also you take up a fairly large amount of bladder to create the bladder flap. So if you have a small bladder, almost all these patients were augmented. Uh, but if you look at the number of operations to get to continence, because of this is a technically demanding operation, it's a little bit higher than the other procedures. So Pippi Sally actually came up with a really nice uh, alternative, which is more of a mucosal flap, which didn't require as much of a hinge where you were tunneling the hinge, you were creating a strip of mucosa in the posterior bladder and then a, hin uh, a hinge type bladder flap with just a mucosal lining here. Um, and that created also a nice continence mechanism, but again, technically fairly demanding and also took up part of the bladder. So this is the Sally. So you're catheterizing here down and this angulation was the biggest problem long-term with difficulty long-term catheterizing. So this is a series that was put together looking at about 50 patients and you can see the success rate is actually about the same as slings. You can get up to about 75 to 80 percent, a little bit tougher with the Sally because of the uh, risk of perforation since it wasn't a full bladder flap. But if you look at dryness with augmentation it gets up to almost hundred percent but the median operations were one additional procedure, open procedure at the bladder neck, and a bunch of people had either endoscopic or injection procedures to get there. So just one good case example, who's a good uh, patient to do this type of a crop or a sally? Big bladders, big bladders matter here. You can see this is smooth walled, no reflux. You've got some uh, decreased resistance in this patient, but you can see a nice compliant bladder. You don't start to get any what we consider higher bladder pressures until you're out almost 400, 500 cc's in a young teenager. <clears throat> so the next best thing uh, would be an artificial urinary sphincter. Now, historically the sphincters uh, were the prior uh, models. They had a lot of mechanical failures, and so the reoperation rate was higher. We think today the 10-year duration of a sphincter is probably in the range of 90 to 95 percent. This is also very different than what you're used to for an adult, like post-prostatectomy incontinence, uh, because those are going to go around the bulbar urethra. For, for either women or for young boys, 
you, you're going to put this around the bladder neck. So the outcomes are always a little bit different than you see in the adult population. So the other problem is we're placing this around this patch of this bladder neck, and that has to be small enough to make them continent when they're young and wide enough that they can still void through when they're older. So it's a little bit trickier with a bladder neck, neck uh, type sling. But the, the success of this is actually very high. 86 to 90% is what most uh, uh, papers will quote as far as continence rate. And this isn't with voiding, this is probably with a channel with an augmentation and maybe even catheterizing through the sling. If you just whittle this down to the patients that are able to void the completion, it actually makes it less likely to, or less optimal for the spina bifida patients. Most of them aren't able to void the empty, but if you had a bladder like this with just a wide open funnel, instead of reconstructing that, you could place a sling around that. Again, you need a, a bladder that's compliant and has adequate capacity, the same as the crop type procedure to get this to work. But essentially here with the bladder neck sling, what we're trying to do is just to completely occlude the urethra. And it actually provides, if you get the right pressure cuff, it actually provides great occlusion. So the kind of the terminal event for bladder neck reconstruction for continence is probably bladder neck closure. Some people historically did this up front, but the problem is you had to have a, a very durable way to empty the bladder. So you needed to know that your Mitrofenoff channel was gonna be uh, good and both and durable before you did this. So this is still uh, first line therapy for cloacal extrophy patients who have no sphincter that you can reconstruct, or if you've had patients with multiple operations at the bladder neck that are still wet, that you really have exhausted all the other options surgically. This is Tony Curry's operation where you actually create a little bit of a flap. So this is the urethra. You need to have tissue interposing here to get this to work. So a little bladder flap that you're gonna close up. Some people will place the augment pedicle over this and a lot of people will place omentum. I've actually also gone to use a myofascial flap to just get more tissue to interpose between that just so you don't get a fistula. But if you look at the success rate, most of them are going to get drier up to 95, almost 100% in some series. So the, the other uh, potential uh, option is, this is another actually a bladder neck uh, closure after failed bladder neck and almost 100% continence in this one as well. So the cinch procedure is combining two of these other operations. So if you think again, a lot of these patients are going to have fairly patchless bladder necks to get a sling to wrap around that and to close that enough is technically a little bit more difficult because you have so much tension on your sling and it can break or loosen over time. So what people have gone to is a mile, either a myofascial wrap or a autologous fascial wrap, but also narrowed the bladder outlet. And this is the procedure that I prefer. If you look at these, they're called different names in the literature, lint procedures or cinch procedures. These are not new. They go back to Dixon Walker's report back in the 80s. And again, continence rates a little higher than either of those alone, either bladder neck reconstruction or sling alone, because you're doing two things to alter the outlet. So this is what that looks like. Patient's head is up here. Here's the two orifices right in here. Here's your bladder neck that's really patchless. So we're gonna actually extend the bladder just in sizes, save as much of this bladder as we can, tubularize that urethra right there, so we're gonna create this nice tubularized urethra, and then this is where the sling is gonna go around it. And again, we're gonna take a fascial sling. I like to leave it attached right here because again, you're, you're leaving one less man-made sewn part of the sling. You're counting on the sling attached to the fascia. You're gonna wrap this around 360 and then bring it back over here. Looks just like this when you're done. And then the sling's gonna come around. 
and back up. We're gonna tack it on one side right to the pubic bone. And that's the final product there. So the next question is, if we alter that outlet, what's that gonna to do to the bladder? And there's actually a lot of historical data and more recent data. A lot of this more recently came out of uh, uh, Dallas where they did were very aggressive about doing bladder necks without augmentation. Um, if you look at the need, the need for secondary augmentation after altering the outlet, it goes anywhere from about 28% to 30% to almost 50% in some series. And some of this depends on how long the follow-up is after the bladder neck. So if we do those bladder neck procedures in isolation, we're essentially going to uh, put that patient on a very close routine follow-up uh, protocol uh, forever. So that next step in our continents kind of paradigm was uh, Mitrofenov procedures. So Mitrof Paul Mitrofenov was a pediatric surgeon. He, he uh, was in a little tiny town, Rouen, France, where Joan of Arc was from. Uh, but he came up with this voila idea. It's like a light bulb going off that um, why not create a neo-urethra? And he was a pediatric surgeon. So the first thing he thought about was why don't we just use the appendix? So an appendical vesicostomy or a Monty or a spiral Monty, anything like that, it's a Mitrofenov procedure. So here is the appendix. It has a nice pedicle, got a nice tubularized structure. You're just going to implant that right into the bladder and allow that patient to self-catheterize. One of the huge benefit is independence, especially in wheelchair-bound patients. Now, there's great reports using any type of tube. So anything that's tubular, you can actually use to create the metrophenol. Um, and there's reasons to not use certain things. This is one of the first papers I wrote. <clears throat> I can't I'll never forget standing up at the American Academy of Pediatric Meeting showing this. We published this back in before 2000. And uh, Dave Bloom, who's a, a, a dear friend, chairman at Michigan, came up to me afterwards. I said, well, gosh, I got 100 patients. And he came up and he kind of grabbed me on the shoulder and said, Mark, that's all very good, but show me 100 patients with one operation with 10 years of continuous follow-up, and then you'll actually have made something important. It's the first time actually somebody challenged us not to just write about series, but to write about long-term outcomes, which are really critical for these patients. So the Mitrofenov procedure, really easy to do. If you look at the original kind of diagrams of how to do it, what they always said is make it a short, straight, and supple tube, bring your bladder to where you're gonna create your stoma. A lot of the problems of all of these have come when you've broken down and try to shortcut some of these rules that were the initial rules of how to create this channel. So stomal stenosis, angulation that can happen right here. It's usually a hinge problem, right, where that goes in the bladder. Leakage from lack of tunnel or high bladder pressures. The channel can obliterate from traumatic catheterizations. You can get abscesses and you can get polyps in the appendix, just like uh, any other piece of bowel. So it doesn't matter where you put this. It can go in the right lower quadrant and you can go in the umbilicus. Uh, you can make these VQ sed flaps. Most people have gone to try to use either a hidden umbilical, or right here you can barely see the opening, or if you're going to put it on the abdominal wall, leave a little bit of this visible. Patients don't like this because it sheds mucus and they have to put a bandaid over it sometimes. But what we don't want is to create long-term problems. So the two big problems are stomal, which is usually a very simple operation to correct this, just putting a skin flap down to overcome skin narrowing. But the bigger problems happen in the subfascial area. And these are usually either traumatic catheterizations or diverticular, or again, you can see here, this is now a long channel that's actually not fixed to the bladder like we initially talked about. This is where a lot of the long-term problems have happened right here. So if you look at the different techniques, the two most common ones are either going to be an appendical vesicostomy or an ileovesicostomy. This is just taking a small piece of ileum, splitting it right down the middle, 
and sewing it longitudinally to create a nice long tube. The nice thing about this is your, your pedicle comes right up the middle versus this, where you have a wide pedicle. You can implant all the way up into here, right into the bladder, right at the hiatus. So actually it's a nice tissue to work with. The other kind of modification of this is Tony Casal, who was one of my partners at that time. And he said, well, we're operating on these big obese patients and that little tiny appendix or Monty channel doesn't make it to the skin. So how do we overcome that? You need two long arms. So the way you do it is you take a little longer piece of ilium, you split it right down the middle, right to the mesentery, and then open it on alternate sides and that unfurls it. So now you can have twice as long as a Monty. But this did create some problems because now you've got this really long channel, even though you did need it in some patients. So finally got Dave Bloom's wish. We uh, got large enough numbers, 100 patients in each of these. So this is APV, Appendix Monty, and Spiral Monty with at least 10-year follow-up and over half the patients. That's the mean follow-up. And if you look at all those different channels, they actually broke down into three different distinct risk groups. So this was the Spiral Monty. Again, this is the problem with the long channel versus the Monty versus the appendix. And this is just a God-made versus a man-made sewn channel. Uh, the natural channel worked better. And at five years and at 10 years, the appendix actually did much better. So parents always want to know, what's the outcome? What's the need for additional surgery after this? And you have to add up each one of these operations, the bladder neck procedure, the appendix. Nobody had great numbers for the appendix, but if you actually want to look at what's the long-term need at five years, about five to 10% same as about 10 years, the complications never go away. They're always gonna be additive because you're gonna have false passages, stenosis happen even out here at 15 years. Um, and so these patients get inherited to our adult colleagues almost always. So what's our current technique? Well, you can do this without actually opening the bladder. So the easiest way to do this if you're gonna do a channel only is put it on the anterior dome. Now this also speaks to why can't you do this robotically, which is probably a great way to do it as long as you don't have a lot of adhesions or shunt problems. Uh, but if you can do this on the anterior dome like an extra vesicle reimplant, why not do it robotically? Or why not do it through a really tiny incision? So here's the bladder. We're just gonna split it. When you're gonna do this extra vesicle, you're just gonna create a trough right here. It's just like doing an extra vesicle reimplant. We're gonna open the detrusor. You got a nice pooching mucosal surface. You're gonna implant that right there and then just bring that right out to the skin right here with a really small. So you can do that through a two or three centimeter incision. How about bladder augmentations? And so I sit on the exam committee for about nine years now for pediatrics. And I tell you, most of your questions about reconstruction aren't gonna be about bladder neck. They're gonna be about either Mitrofenov channels, if you can't catheterize them, what do you do? Or bladder augmentations, because it's a target-rich environment. So this is something that's done both in peds and adults, the complications are the same. Um, so first question is, how do you avoid it? Well, early medical management. So the most recent thing that was looked at is Botox. And the problem with Botox in kids with neuropathic bladder is we don't know how often you have to do it, but if you look at, has it been used? This is the FIS database, which is, the largest 50 children's hospitals. How often was it used? Well, it's almost a linear upward trend. This was a partial year. But the problem is, is it didn't really change the number of augmentations done. So we may not be doing it exactly early enough to alter the eventual need for augmentation. But this is the patient that will benefit from Botox because think about what Botox does. It's a neuromuscular relaxant. So who does it work best for? 
detrusor overactivity. So kids that get overactive detrusor contractions, you may be able to obliterate that. You're not going to change as much when they have poor compliance because that's actually an interstitial muscle uh, collagen and elastin problem, not a muscle problem anymore. So the other thing you'll notice here, this is the count of augments in those same series as a, the increasing uh, injections, but you haven't really changed your augmentation. Again, this speaks to timing. So a bladder like this that's small, contracted, you can Botox this till the cows come home and you're not going to get a lot of expansion. That's probably the biggest problem is that you've got this problem, which is a collagen infiltration in the muscle. That's not going to change with Botox over time. And so the gold standard for these patients is still enterocystoplasty or augmentation. So back to that slide that I started with. We thought that about two-thirds of these patients weren't going to require problems, but that was probably a big fish story. That's, for those of you that don't know, that's your halibut steaks, and that is a red bass from the bottom of the uh, canal up in uh, Alaska. So this is a follow-up on that same series of patients. So the truth in reporting, honestly, about 50% require additional surgery, and it's the most common thing is going to be bladder stones. And the problem is bladder stones, if you get them, you're probably going to get them again and again. Most of these other things are going to be either once and done or rarely repetitive in the same patient. <clears throat> so we went back and looked at just straight spina bifida patients. We had about 400 patients. Uh, we looked at all these outcomes, which are the important ones because that's what the patients want to know. It's also what correct, create, creates a, a morbidity and mortality. So again, we had long-term follow-up in most of these patients. Most of them had ileal augments, but some ba uh, large bowel augmentation. And about 44% had 370 additional surgeries. So almost everybody got something, if you think of it very simplistically. And if you look at what's your risk after, this is the time after augmentation, when are you most likely to get additional surgery? This curve never flattens out completely if you look at it. So the risk never goes away. And I think, again, we have to be very honest with patients and families about what's your risk. So how about urinary diversion? If you look at it, if you follow these patients long enough, what happens is they, they become adults and if they're having problems either catheterizing or they're wheelchair bound and they just get tired of managing their bladder, these patients go on to have some other type of diversion, usually ileal conduits. So you can see 65% ileal conduits. Why? Because it's easy. They just need to change an appliance and they avoid all these major problems, which is incontinence, UTIs, and perforation of the bladder. So this is the operation I like to, that we have coined uh, if you lose your bladder privileges. So if you have a bladder augmentation and you've perforated more than once or you get repetitive stones, infections, port of control, you can actually convert that into an ileal chimney. Now this is not perfect because you still get stasis, you still have to catheterize it, they can still get stones, but it no longer requires the patient to catheterize to empty the bladder reservoir, which creates safety for them. So again, I mentioned bladder stones were the most common thing. 10-year risk, about almost 30%. And we looked at, does it matter? There's a lot of literature about, do you need to take them out intact? Can you fracture them? Can you take it out endoscopically? We looked at about 100 patients, each about it divided down almost equivalently into different ways of taking a stone out. Interestingly, the risk of stone, if you have a catheterizable channel, and this makes sense if you think about why you get a stone, it's from stasis or not getting the mucus out. So if you're catheterizing through a catheterizable channel, you're coming from above and you're siphoning the urine out and maybe not getting all the mucus out. Whereas if you're catheterizing per urethra, you're doing it at the base of the funnel, so you're more likely to get all the mucus out. And there is a difference in stone occurrence almost twice if they're catheterizing through the channel. 
a lot of people, myself included, have, have gone to trying to use a percutaneous approach. We don't necessarily, for big stones, we don't like to take them out through either the reconstructed bladder neck or through the Mitrofenoff channel because of risk of, of either uh, incontinence or damaging the channel. So either open systolithotomy or percutaneous. And I do this just with uh, a, a channel catheter. So you've got kind of continuous flow and you just put a 12 French trocar and you do it with a nephroscope and you can either extract the stones intact or you can use any type of lithotripsy to break them up and just take the particles out. So it's a quick way to do it as an outpatient. If you look at actually stone fragmentation, it actually doesn't change your risk of additional stones, which we thought if you dust the stones, you're more likely to get them again quicker. It actually didn't turn out to be true, even with five and 10 year follow-up. But I, I tell you, you know, you always have to admit uh, some variances in, in, in your patient selection. So if the patient had this, which is a six centimeter stone, you're much more likely to take that out through an open approach than these little tiny stones, probably doesn't matter. Hey, take these out versus this, which is gonna be really easy to fragment and get out through a percutaneous approach. So part of the problems in the literature is that you don't always see uh, how you divided your patients into the different types of techniques to remove the stone. Now, the biggest problem with stones is recurrence. So the, the biggest answer for managing this is actually prevention. And the best paper, uh, my mentor, Doug Hoosman, this got published in Translational Andrology, which nobody reads, uh, but actually he actually proved that if they actually lavage the bladder. So we know we tell these patients irrigate with about 60 cc's once or twice a day. First off, nobody does it. If you can get them to do it, but if actually you can get them to do it with high volume lavage, your stone incidence actually decreases dramatically. So instead of a 50% recurrence, you make it a 15 to 20% recurrence. So the one thing to remember, if you've got patients that are getting recurrent stones, the answer is lavage. Sometimes catheterizing per urethra will also help. How about the need for reaugmentation? So initially this was actually a problem because people were not detubularizing and reconfiguring the augment patch. So you're just putting a contractile patch right on without actually or cutting the bladder or the augment uh, intestine into pieces and then putting it back together again, which took away the contractile property of it. So if you look at the, actually the detubularized and reconstructed, it's about 5%. Most of, and if you look at long-term, once you get them out about five to 10 years, there's not a late recurrence of this at all. So once you get them doing well, the biggest problem would be right where you sewed the augment on. If you don't, haven't opened the bladder, the native bladder wide enough, you create an hourglass deformity, which doesn't empty the augment very well. And that's probably the, one of the larger reasons for re-augmentation. <clears throat> one of the late problems that actually, all, all of the, this problem will be inherited in the adult uh, urologist because this, doesn't, this never goes away. So even though we, we preserve that last eight to 10 inches of the terminal ilium, which we think is the, the part where you reabsorb most of your B12 with intrinsic factor, actually the entire bowel is actually active for actually reabsorbing. So even if you take 30 centimeters proximal to that, you're still gonna see in some patients the risk of B12 deficiency, even with the intact ileocecal valve. And, and it's about one in five. This was an early paper we looked at. When do they get it? Well, it happens as expected right at about seven years. So you need to start doing yearly B12 levels, maybe a little bit before this, but you can see it's really high once you get out beyond seven years, which is when your stores of B12 actually go away, your buffered stores. Now, if you just replace them with an oral B12 um, over-the-counter vitamin, actually you restore up to normal by four months in almost everybody. The problem is, is there's no compliance in this group. The same as compliance with catheterization, irrigation, they don't take their B12. So you have to follow this up 
and a lot of these patients will get converted to actually injections. Then we go to the two major complications of augmentations, and that would be perforation and cancer risk. And again, if you look at there's most of the reports were single institutional reports. You're going to see three, five, six patients. This was ours early on, three uh, patients. We've, I think we've had five out of that uh, 600, 700 patient series now. The problem is by the time you diagnose this, the patients usually have metastatic disease that's highly aggressive um, and it's fairly lethal in most of the reports. <clears throat> so the best question is who's actually at risk? And so you actually actually have to take a, a cohort with an augmentation and an equivalent cohort without an augmentation. And Doug Hoosman actually did this, followed these patients for about five to 10 years. Interestingly, if you have a neuropathic bladder and you just catheterize that bladder, this has been shown before, your risk of cancer is about 2%. If you augment that bladder, it's about 2% too. So this is this group right here of 100 patients, not much difference whether you had an augment or not. So this patient group already has a risk of cancer. We might increase it a little bit, but other risk factors like uh, tobacco actually increased it more than the augment. If you look at other patients that we're reconstructing, they actually have a higher risk. So extra fee patients, 8% risk if you have an augmentation. The highest group was the valve patients, and this had to do with they were, if they had an augmentation and had renal failure, a transplant, and were on immune suppression. They by far had the highest incidence. Now, this does not include nephrogenic adenomas. These we think are benign tumors. We have not seen these advance. These are usually from recurring infection or trauma or both together. And you can see them in augmented patients pretty frequently. We usually take them out for diagnosis. <clears throat> Bladder perforation, this again is a life-threatening potentially uh, occurrence. If you look at the 10-year risk, about 10%, which is much higher in the literature, usually it's going to say 4 or 5%, and it has to do with compliance with emptying the bladder as the patient gets older. Early uh, papers looked at how the patients present. So this patient actually walked into clinic with no symptoms. This is a urinoma, and here's the bladder over here, and it actually will seal off in some patients versus this patient with a little tiny leak was in the ICU septic at that point. So silence to chaos. You always have to remember if the patient's had an augmentation and they're ill, one of the potential etiologies is a rupture of that bladder. So the, the answer to this, if you ever get asked this question on any exam, is a CT cystogram. And the findings on a CT cystogram in a symptomatic patient is either increased fluid or any kind of contrast outside the bladder. And that patient most often is gonna to need to be managed with a laparotomy. So if you look at risks for the patients, as expected, if you've had bladder neck procedure versus a sling or no bladder neck, these are pop-off valves down here. So if the bladder fills and the pressure goes up, they're gonna leak, which is actually a good thing. If they've had bladder neck surgery, they're less likely to leak, they have no pop-off. So what pops? The augmentation. So these patients have a much higher risk of perforation. Actually, if they were catheterizing per urethra, this was actually a protective if they had a channel, why? because they can do it without disrobing. And if the patient's in a wheelchair, catheterizing per urethra usually takes help. So if they have a channel, they're more likely to be on time. So management uh, options for perforation, it depends on how sick the patient is, but most people would go straight to laparotomy, bladder closure, and drainage, because you've got essentially a patient most likely with a VP shunt. You need to wash that out. They have to have this shunt externalized and you've got to close the perforation. Occasionally, you can manage this percutaneously with just a drain and good decompression of the bladder. We're gonna skip through this. This is a good bladder. This, again, I showed this earlier. This has got a great compliance. We can do almost anything to make that patient dry. 
If you've got a patient, this is a patient that comes in late, you may see in your adult clinic, she's 22 years old, she had a tethered cord, she's got terrible kidneys because nobody took care of her. She's got no function in this kidney right here. You'd say, gosh, that looks like a good bladder, 300 cc's, the problem at 300 cc's, relatively smooth wall with a little bit of trabeculation, her pressure was 50. So you'd expect that kidney to probably have no function because she's living out here she's not emptying. So this is a bad bladder. She's already lost one kidney. That one needs an augmentation almost no matter what. Here's the bad and the ugly. This is the kid that's leaking, has what looks to be a good bladder, normal kidneys. We do a bladder neck reconstruction. There's his pre-op. That's that same child. Now here's his bladder. We've taken up too much bladder at 100 cc's. He's unsafe. What happens to those kids? They get hydronephrosis, they get reflux, and they get this awful looking bladder. So this is why you have to follow those kids for life. So with or without an augmentation, if you've done anything, you need yearly ultrasound and KUB. If they have recurring UTI, we'd go back and look at their CIC technique. Consider cystoscopy because sometimes stones will be missed. Metabolically, they need a CBC, BMP. We started collecting Cystatin C. We think this may be better for long-term renal function monitoring, but we don't know that yet. And then B12 levels. The other thing that's never been talked about is these patients, if they've got subtle metal, metabolic acidosis, especially women, and they're inactive, we may want to consider risk of osteoporosis. So you might want to consider DEXA scans. And then for surveillance, nothing has been shown to be very good. People have looked at doing early cystoscopy, cytology. Nothing has really found these aggressive cancers early enough. Um, so anything, blood in the urine, recurrent UTIs, we're going to work those patients up very aggressively. Are there options to enterocystoplasty? Absolutely, this is a, a detrusor uh, auto-augmentation. We're just gonna split the detrusor and create this big mucosal flap. You have to have a huge bladder to get that to work. If you've lost a kidney and you have a lot of ureter, you can actually use that ureteral tissue for the ureterocystoplasty. Again, ideally, we're never gonna see this today because we're never gonna get high-grade reflux and massive hydrophosis because we should be preventing that with our medical therapy. So in, in in the end, what have we learned? Well, they want to be continent, but it may be okay to wait a little bit. They want to be a continent of stool earlier. So medical management and even surgical management, uh, if the uh, uh, rectal uh, management of uh, animus doesn't work. These patients are surviving into adulthood, so we're going to pass them off from pediatric care to adult care, so we need to make them safe. They are sexual adults. They're going to want help with this really early, and they are fertile, so we've got that potential risk of of babies in these patients that, that it doesn't go away till they're much older. So I think in closing, if you don't learn anything, these are the two books I always recommend. This is Michael Lewis. You know him because he did a bunch of like Moneyball and The Big Short. This is called The Undoing Project. It's about two Israeli uh, psychologists that actually won the Nobel Prize in economics because of decision theory. And what they found is that expert opinion doesn't work. What works best is following protocols. So it's why we've been so good, I think. And I think it's why it's so important to actually have long-term follow-up with protocol-driven outcomes, not necessarily expert opinion always. And then also Atul Gawande, who's uh, uh, also a surgeon. His dad was a urologist in Ohio. And he actually documents his dad's process as he kind of progressed towards a chronic illness, which was prostate cancer, and how we need to talk to people about what their quality of life is. I think it's especially important in children because they have a longer lifespan and what we do to them is really important. So I'm gonna stop right there. I gotta show off a little, another fish picture. 
Um, they've asked me to show this to share your thoughts about using, uh, whether or not you think these lectures are important, uh, especially during this COVID theory. Hopefully we can keep these things online and I'm gonna open up the question answer box. So if anybody has any que questions, put them in the Q&A box um, and I'll try to respond to them. That's the best lecture I've ever given if there's no questions. <laughs> All right, great talk and great fish. What size cuffs are traditionally used for bladder neck artificial urinary sphincters? So you don't do this any different than a bull bar. So what you wanna do is measure it. And it's the three and a half or, or four centimeter cuff. It depends on the patient's age, ideally, and whether it's a male or female, uh, but you'd actually just measure it. And that's, that's where this expert kind of uh, outcome comes in place. We don't do bladder neck uh, AUS is very often. And actually we just, one of our residents just looked at it and it was an insured population and there were actually only about 50 of them done over the last 10 years. So I would tell you, nobody's very expert at this right now, unfortunately. So what I'll usually do when I do this, I actually will usually ask one of our adult colleagues to come join us to do this and have them help measure the cuff size is probably the most critical thing and then just assembly. But, you know, a four centimeter cuff is usually about it. Um, and the pressure regular in the mid-range. Interestingly, when we looked at the, uh, the pediatric uh, AUSs, what isn't necessarily reported in the literature is how many kids needed reoperations early. It was actually pretty high, and I think it has to do with the cuff size not being perfect in these kids. How do you deal with the sexual aspects uh, from Dr. Badri? That's a great question. So the problem with uh, sexuality in spina bifida patients is most of these patients are managed uh, in a spina bifida clinic and there's nobody there that is actually uh, good at talking about sexuality. And most of the spina bifida patients are no different than other teenagers. So I think one of the problems is that we have to introduce it, that it's okay to talk about sexuality. Remember that the women in spina bifida actually go through puberty really early, so the risk of pregnancy is really high, really young. But what you want to do is start talking to the, to the men, especially because we can treat the men for uh, any kind of impotence. These patients are actually very amenable to uh, Viagra and any of the PDE inhibitors. Um, so I think you want to just talk to them. They have trouble with because a lot of them will lose sensation, but they still want to be sexually active. So I think actually letting them know that you can talk about sexual intercourse, about sexuality, once they hit teenage years and into a transition clinic is, is the key to that. How often do we do MACEs? So I actually grew up in the MACE Monty augmentation era. Uh, so what you wanna do is you want the peristine pump, the problem with the peristine is most of these patients are on Medicaid and in some states, the peristine pump isn't paid for. So it's really expensive. They can use a cone enema. The problem with a cone enema is that you, um, that you need help to do it. The peristine is independent because they can put the peristine enema in, they pump up the bulb and deliver the enema themselves. So the peristine and the mace are very, very similar. The reason I like them all trialing that before we get to an open operation is if you're gonna do a mace, the best outcome for a mace is actually to use the appendicocecostomy. It's also the best outcome for the metrophenoff. 
One of the ways you can use it for both is to split it or extend the appendix into the cecum for the mace. So we wanna answer that question, can you get dry of stool with a rectal enema program, peristine, et cetera, before you get to reconstruction? So if you look at maces, I think we had about 450 when I left Riley. Um, and actually most of them like it because they're, they're in, the nice thing about the mace is it gives them independence to deliver the enema. And the outcome's the same as a peristine. They're no difference. Uh, Colette Antoine, how do you deal with adults acutely having difficulty catheterizing the stoma? So that's a great question. You may see that question again, just an FYI. So if the patient has difficulty acutely where they have a distended augmented bladder, the answer is to decompress it. So the easiest way to de decompress it with is a large bore intravenous catheter. Get the bladder empty. Sometimes you can catheterize them once you decompress the augmented bladder because it's, it's an angulation issue. So first thing you always want to do, decompress the bladder to make them safe so they don't rupture. We'll usually scope the channel or scope the urethra and try to get something across that with a wire. If you leave the catheter in place, if you look at long-term outcomes for metrophanos managed endoscopically for difficulty catheterizing, if you leave a catheter across that for about two weeks, you'll eliminate the need for open surgery in, in a, over half of them. So early decompression, get a catheter across it, whether you have to take them to the operating room and scope them or a flexible scope, just get a wire and then just put a catheter over the wire. That's the, uh, uh, the best approach. Anonymous attendee, a little confused when you said the augment bowel segment was divided multiple times. So what you're gonna do, you're gonna split it down the middle, but you're gonna reconfigure it multiple times. Sorry, you wanna open the bladder widely. So a lot of people, if the bladder is really small and you can't get it clamshelled open, will split it either obliquely like this to get it really open, or they'll open the bladder almost like a cross, in a, in a, not just front to back, but side to side. So you wanna reconfigure the, the bowel segment multiple times, but put that onto a bladder that's been opened widely. Sorry if that was confusing. You don't have to open that bowel more than once, which is right down the middle, and you wanna open that anti-mesenteric anti border, obviously. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, again, stones is gonna be about a 20% 20, 20 risk, Dr. Badrio. So my approach to stones, um, depends on the size of the stone. If they're really small and you have an open urethra, we're gonna do it, take them out endoscopically through the urethra. I like to follow these patients that have stones actually on six month intervals. And the reason why is if you can extract them in the office with a basket through their channel when they're really small, that's probably ideal because you're avoiding multiple anesthetics for these kids. But if they get larger stones, once they get above about two and a half to three centimeters, I'm gonna make an incision to take it out because I think it takes so long to fracture that and to get all the fragments that I'm gonna do better and they're gonna have a better outcome if we just make a small cystotomy. Anything smaller than that, again, I'm gonna take that out percutaneously. I'm gonna use a 12 trocar. I'm gonna put that right through the incision, fill the bladder up, put it right through the incision, right into the bladder. I'm gonna extract the stones, either fracturing them or just taking them directly out using a nephroscope. I'm gonna leave a 16 French catheter across that and a catheter across their metrophenoff. And I'm gonna leave that for about a week and have them irrigate through and through to try to take all the dust out. And then I'll pull the catheter in the office and then uh, have them start cathing again within a day or two. Let that all seal up. But you can do those actually as an outpatient procedure with good antibiotic coverage. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.com dot edu